Hello and welcome to the Friday the 28th of February edition of the We Ginger Dugcast and today I'm joined by the Nationals, uh, Stuart Ward. Hello there, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm excellent, thank you. You're a little bit wet. <laughs> a little bit. Because you're not long enough the street, are I'm you? I'm not long enough, it's just storm number seven or something, yes, I don't I know. I think the technical meteorological term is, it's minging <laughs> So I and we're in for snow tonight, so that's great. So, yeah, so what's been happening this week? Quite a lot of things. There was some an important story that we yes. forgot to mention yes. last week just because we were just so full of the joys of life, mm-hmm. you know, moaning about everything. And that was a piece of good news. Very good news. It was very good news. Uh, the Scottish Parliament passed legislation um, extending the franchise to everybody who is legally resident in Scotland, irrespective of citizenship, as well as to... Um, people who are serving sentences of less than 12 months. So, certainly, like, extending... I mean, I know there's been a bit of controversy about, you know, extending the franchise to people who are in prison. Personally, I think it's a good idea because the whole point is you want to rehabilitate people and to get them engaged with society. But I'm far more pleased, obviously, because I have a personal reason to be pleased about it, about extending the franchise to everybody who's resident in Scotland um, because it means that my husband who is an American citizen will get the vote mm-hmm. in Scottish elections and in the Scottish independence referendum. And you know it, it, it's it's really, you find often that people who obviously come from Europe are coming the, there's a real stake in the politics. Oh, exactly. And that really, you know, that really helps inform our vote. Exactly. And well, they, they live here, they mm-hmm. work here, mm-hmm. they pay taxes here. So it's only reasonable that they should have a say in what happens here. You know, this is where they're choosing to live their lives, where they, where they want to build a family very often, where they want to, you know, spend the rest of their lives. And why shouldn't people have the right to have a say on what happens in Scotland? So I'm very pleased about that. Also, I think that it will help independence in a lot of ways, because I think, you know, certainly back in 2014, uh, people who weren't British citizens uh, were probably more reluctant to vote yes because it meant, you know, they saw it as leaving the European Union and threatening their status and all that thing. And now voting for independence is seen as being the quickest route back in to the EU, uh, or certainly to have a, a closer relationship with the European Union. So I think that will certainly boost support for independence. I don't believe that EU and foreign citizens were polled in the recent opinion poll that came out this week. Uh, the one from YouGov that was much touted by Gordon Brown and the likes. It was carried out by these islands, I believe, or some organised some some anti-independence organisation. And the headline figures were, you know, I think it was something like fifty point five percent no and forty nine point five percent yes. But it seems, according to, if I'm, if I'm reading them correctly, that 16 and 17 year olds weren't included. And it doesn't look as though European or non EU citizens were included either. And that could certainly make all the difference. It's quite convenient, isn't That's it? It's very convenient. But that question, that poll was grossly misre- misreported. You know, it was touted an awful lot in the press that 50% of people blame the SNP for the divisions in Scottish society. <laughs> that's, what it, that's, that's the headlines, that's what they were saying. But it was 50% of people who think that, there's, that Scotland is divided. 
mm-hmm. and that was 57% of people. So only 50% of 57% of people think that Scotland is divided and blame the SNP for it. So it's grossly misleading to say that 50% of people think that the SNP is to blame for the divisions of Scottish society. It's like 29%, 28%. You know, which is pretty much in line with people who are deeply opposed to independence under all and any circumstances. So in that respect, it's not really surprising that you're going to get that kind of a figure, you know, and that kind of people pointing the blame in that direction. It's also just, I mean, just going back to extending the franchise as well, I think it sends a, a kind of message about the kind of contrasting direction the Very UK is going so. in and Scotland's going in, and I think anything that illustrates that is going to help in, in a kind of Showing that you know we can go a better route, and you know we just give us more powers, and we can do more like this. And we can, yeah, certainly. One of the things I've always thought, actually, that the Scottish government should do, um, certainly during the campaign for independence, I think what they should say is that when Scotland becomes independent, and the event, you know, on independence, anybody, I, this is what I believe, that anybody who is legally resident in Scotland should automatically be offered Scottish citizenship. Mm-hmm. You know, as a one-off gesture, just to say, right, if you live in Scotland at the time of Scottish, if Scotland becomes an independent country, you can apply to become a Scottish citizen if you want to be, you know. And I think that would be a nice gesture of inclusion and mm-hmm. in the kind of Scotland that we want. And I really much hope that some politicians are listening to this podcast <laughs> take that idea on board because it doesn't cost any money to do it, you know, and it's a good gesture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, like you said, it's about, you know, it's about the, the image of the kind of Scotland that we want to portray. Meanwhile, uh, the UK is going in the other direction entirely. Very uh, much so. Michael Gove announced this week that the UK is prepared to walk away from negotiations with the EU about their future trading status. Um, what do you think of that? Well, it was, of course, Michael Gove said it, not Boris Johnson, because Boris Johnson is... Oh, missing in action. Missing in action yes. somewhere. Part-time Prime Minister. <laughs> I mean, just, I'd love to see them, you know, the, the, the reaction in Scotland to them trying that one. But they probably will. Oh, no, I, I mean, this is, I mean, when, you know, when they, when they struck the deal, you know, I think we all said at the time, because <laughs> they have to strike it just now, and if they could walk away and get a no deal, I think that's what they, they want. want it. I they want a no they, deal. That's what, but they don't want to call it a no deal. They want mm. to call it an Australian style deal. Points because Australia love Australia because Australia doesn't have a deal. So, <laughs> so, so that's so it's not no deal. It's an Australian style deal. You know because Australia doesn't have a deal. So let's just call it that because it sounds better than no deal. But that's effectively what it would be. Mm. They want. They say a Canada style deal. They want Canada, but. As I can't remember who it was, some EU figure, I think it was Michel Barnier, said, you know, you're not Canada. Sure, surely they're going to stick a few pluses in the end of it. Normally do Canada deal plus plus mm. or whatever. But I think they want no deal. Oh, no. You it's know, pretty mm, obvious mm. that that's what they want. They want to walk away from the EU with no deal. They want to flood the, the UK with cheap, you know... Um, cheap food and clothes and mm. products from, from outside the EU in order they can say, oh, this is the benefit of Brexit, but that would destroy the British you know, farming industry, it would destroy manufacturing, but they don't care about that, you know, so it's, it's grossly cynical, you know, they're, they're going to threaten so many jobs, also that a small number of people can enrich themselves even further. Mm. And, you know, it kind of seems just last week, um, or was it this week, Nicola Sturgeon kind of went down with a bunch of business leaders with regards to immigration, 
changes to things. This isn't this isn't good for us. Yeah, the fishing industry worrying about it. Uh, this is another area where you can just see businesses and the like who like seeing this is not our option. Like the union is not an option. No, no. And I think it's going to be a, a slow. I've honestly, I, I believe this is the year that we'll start to see nailed on majorities for independence. I think that's mm-hmm. this, this. I think we've got to that kind of tipping point now that you know that all we see coming out of Westminster is bad news. You know, things that are bad for Scotland, and we're not able to do anything about it. I mean, there's so much focus in the Scottish media about what the Scottish government does, but the Scottish government has to operate within financial and political constraints imposed upon it by Westminster, and it's Westminster that determines those parameters, and we in Scotland are completely unable to influence those parameters. Mm-hmm. That's the question. That's the key issue about independence. You know, so you can talk about the economy all you want. You can talk about uh, education. You can talk about housing. You can talk about health. But fundamentally, that question of political accountability—that's the very core question of independence. We don't have control over the Scottish economy. We don't have control over the Scottish budget. You know, we don't have control over what the Scottish Parliament can and cannot do. And that's the reason why we have to have independence. Mm. I think as well, just talking about the kind of growth of yes in the polls and stuff, I've said this in one of our earlier podcasts, I think as well, is <laughs> I know that most kind of people won't read our notice board or our YesDIY pages. I know reading them, the state of the yes movement is, you know, we've got such good ground game, got such good activist network, and everyone, you know, people listening to this podcast um, will know it, because they'll, they'll see the notice board and they'll see it. There is such a good organisational structure underneath as well, and I don't think they account for that. No, I don't think and I think that's that. one of the reasons why, well, I think it's one of the reasons why they're so terrified of another referendum, mm-hmm. because when they agreed to the first re- referendum, you know, uh, there wasn't that mass grassroots movement of, of yes, but there is now, and it's 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 it, all it's done is to become further entrenched and further strengthened in the, the years since. And they now they just don't have the boots on the ground. No. They just don't have people to go around and chapping on doors. You know the the, the yes movement does. No, the, there's no, there's not a wee ginger dog touring their exactly <laughs> touring exactly. their venues and you know sharpening each other's arguments, sharpening. Yeah. Campaign tactics. It would be it would be a some pedigree <laughs> dog with with that was totally inbred. That's what they would have. <laughs> Not like the wee ginger dog who's really healthy. We should point out by mm-hmm. the way that he's had an operation this week. He had a tooth out uh, and needed a general anaesthetic, obviously because dogs won't cooperate with teeth being taken out <laughs> any other way. And he did a blood test as part of that. And the vet said to me that normally in a dog of ginger's age, because he's. 13 now, he's, he's getting on a bit they expect to find something you know, that, that something that needs to be kept an eye on, you know, kidney function or, you know, liver function or whatever and she says that there's absolutely nothing, nothing at all, she said he's such a healthy dog, so I think he'll be with us for a while, yeah. It's a good story. But he was really, he wasn't a happy boy <laughs> he was not a happy boy. He was like drunk, you know. Oh, he was still no. full of the anaesthetic, and he was staggering about, and he really wasn't happy. Was not happy. So we got him home. Uh, I had to help him onto the sofa. Oh. And there was this big harumph 
<laughs> that was him. He just lay there for the rest of the night, pretty much. You know. <laughs> right. And then the night, the day after, he was just kind of. Uh, so, but he seems to be back to his normal self now. Yeah. So, so yeah. But anyway, but back to politics. <laughs> that too. Which is what we're supposed to be that talking too. about, and not my dog's hair. Well, we did a dog cast. Well, yeah, I suppose. Um, Joanna Cherry said something interesting. Now, I'm not. I don't really want to get into the whole who's a better candidate in Edinburgh than you know between Joanna Cherry or, or, or <laughs> mm. Angus Mayo. Uh, sorry, Angus Robertson. Angus Robertson. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Um, but she did make a really interesting point, which was that there's not much that the SNP can do in Westminster. You know, their, their hands are very much tied because there's this huge majority of Tory MPs. You know, that they are regularly, they're ridiculed, they're barracked, they're ignored, they're sidelined. And there's very much, there's not very much that they're able to achieve in concrete terms down there. And she thinks that the action, the game is really in Hollywood. And that's where independence will be, you know, won or lost. Mm. And I think that's an interesting point. You know, like what, should be the function of SNP, of pro-independence MPs, obviously, because Neil Harvey as well isn't technically an SNP MP. Uh, what should be their function in Westminster? And I think that's quite an interesting point, you know, and I think really, it was noticeable, I think, that when they had that walkout, was it last year or the year before? Last year, I think, wasn't it? Aye. Yeah. Uh, there was a huge upswell in support yep. you know, for the SNP. Yep. I think it was actually, I think it was 2018. You're kidding, right? Okay. Okay. Could, could well have been. Good grief. Yeah. Getting on a bit. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, and I think we, we need to see more of that kind of thing from them. Mm. I think we need to see more. The, the, the SNP need to make it clear that they're not in Westminster to be comfortable. Yes. And they're not in Westminster to make you know, they're, they're there to make life difficult for the Tories, mm. basically, and they should use every obscure procedural mechanism that they can think of. And there's plenty of them. There's loads of them. You know, just spell. You know, what is it? Shouting out "I spy strangers" <laughs> and stuff like this. You know, that, that they have to clear the, the chamber. You know, things like that. They should be doing that. They should be disruptive. You know, because if the Conservatives are not going to give Scotland respect, why should you respect them back? And, and just on that note of not respecting Scotland as well, we've got this, the news about the committee this week. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the Tories trying to stuff the Scottish Affairs Committee with more Tory MPs, yep. despite winning less... Um, you know, they lost over they half lost. their MPs yeah. in Scotland and they want extra representation on the Scottish Affairs Committee. Mm. I mean, that's just outrageous. And the SNP can protest about it, they can say, right, well, you know, they can raise points of order, they can have a debate on it, but at the end of the day, the Tories have got a majority of 80, and they will just ram it through, you know. So I think they need to be a lot more inventive in ways to right, make life difficult for the government. You know, they should be using obscure procedural mechanisms. Things like, and, and not really abiding by... Some of the rules are the commons which basically make life cosy for politicians. You know, like, for example, the worst thing you can do in the commons is to call someone else a liar, apparently. And Boris Johnson just lies constantly. Mm. So why don't you just call him out as a liar? Because calling him out as a liar, the person who calls him as a liar will be suspended or have to leave the commons, have to leave the chamber. But that will generate a lot of publicity. And then there will be discussion about, well, you know, but he is actually a liar. 
you know, and it will mean that he's held to account for his lies in a way that he's not currently being held to account, you know. And also, it highlights the way in which the rules of the Commons are stacked against democracy, really, you know. I mean, for a parliament, the, the whole point of Brexit was supposed to be to restore the sovereignty of the British Parliament. You know, the, the government's doing a really good job of removing as much of it as it possibly can and taking it all for the Prime Minister. The part-time Prime Minister. The part-time Prime Minister, yes. Do you know what the rumour is, by the way? Well, I've heard a couple of what's... Yeah, well, when apparently been... he received a £600,000 mm. advance from his publisher to write a book about Shakespeare... And the publishers now want the advance back, so he's been locking himself away to batter out a few chapters and <laughs> to keep his publisher happy. That's what people are saying. That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. It's really great. Yeah, yeah. so bugger the floods, bugger coronavirus, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Boris Johnson wants to, yeah, wants to make some money writing a book. Everything can go on. I mean, the poor soul, he needs the money. I mean, oh, he God. He does, does. I mean, he's got eating fees to pay for his <laughs> children that he admits to having. <laughs> <laughs> We don't know how many of those there are. No. <laughs> um, and just Ed, if I can just tag on to the end of that, we're talking about the disrespect. Um, you know, this week obviously they were in Glasgow. There yes. was two drug summits, two summits towards drug death. One by the Scottish government, Scottish Council, uh, Glasgow City Council, and one by the UK government the day after. Yep. There was two because the UK government didn't bother to inform the Scottish government, <laughs> the Scottish government that there was going to be one. Well, uh, so that's a bad start. And then there's a lot of us, just Scottish government and the council here want to have a safe drug consumption room. Yep. And the UK say no. And then today's Glasgow Times reporting that the UK minister threatened to sue health workers if they were in a consumption room and someone died. And again, it's just this case of Scotland wanting to do this, wanting to, you know, it's got huge support here. And the UK just says no. no and can. nothing we can do. But it is, I don't understand why, where this comes from. It's come from the Home Office that there's, there's this visceral refusal to change, to liberalise drug policy. I mean, we see that in the laws about cannabis, you know. Um, you know. Recently I was in California. They have shops that sell cannabis. You can walk into a shop and buy cannabis in a shop in, in California. Uh, Connecticut, the state that my husband is from, is, is going to be doing that this year. Massachusetts did it just last year. And you know, the world hasn't ended. Mm-hmm. You know, Portugal has decriminalised possession of all drugs. You know, and that doesn't mean that it's legal. It just means that it's still an offence, but there's no penalty. So it means that, so if if you decriminalise, say, for the sake of argument, you were to decriminalise the possession of cannabis in Scotland, it wouldn't mean that, that it's legal. It would mean that the police would, somebody, if somebody's walking down the street smoking a joint and being a nuisance, the police can confiscate it. But it just means that you're not criminalising the people for possession of it. And, and I've never understood how it helps someone who has a drug problem to give them this additional problem of criminalisation as well. That's not helping them. No, and it, the dealers still get, you know, exactly. criminalised, the dealers still get punished right. now. Um, and Scotland does have a serious problem with drug deaths. Mm-hmm. And part of that problem is because people are forced to use adulterated drugs, you know, contaminated needles. Uh, so they, they develop a whole lot of health issues along with the drugs that they wouldn't have to, you know, encounter if the, they were able to, you know, acquire drugs in a safe way that, 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 that they could make sure that the drugs could be consumed in a safe manner. And I don't understand why there's this 
visceral opposition from the British government mm-hmm. about any liberalisation whatsoever of of drug policy. And the thing about you know the consumption rooms is it just to me it just seems common sense. You know the whole point of a drugs policy should be about first of all harm reduction because you can't just say no you're not going to have it. You know banning things doesn't work. The Americans tried that. The Americans tried that with prohibition the prohibition of alcohol in the 1920s. And all that happened was that organised crime got established. You know, the mafia, that's how they got their, their big... You know, their, their, their big break, as it were, was supplying alcohol. And it's now the same with this so-called war on drugs that we've got. You know, it's just establishing organised crime. And if you remove the criminal element from it, then it becomes a question of of health and social care and then it's a lot easier to tackle it and to minimise you know, the, the consequences on users and the consequences on wider society but the UK government is just absolutely refusing to, to budge Of course no UK minister would ever use drugs in any Oh no none what? No 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 Oh no Michael Gove no you wouldn't ever do that Michael Gove not at all Boris Johnson no no <laughs> Yeah so yeah so uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've known a lot of people. I mean, I, I lived in Easter House all the way through the 80s and I've lost friends. You know, one of my friends died just before his 21st birthday. And he didn't actually die of an overdose. He died because he tried to stop too quickly. And his body just couldn't stand the shock, basically, because it was so weakened. It was so rattled by, you know, years and years of drug use. You know, and it's... It, 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 none of those people... They used drugs because they had complex problems, right? And one of my friends who was a, a long-standing addict said to me that the reason he used drugs was because when he's, at, when he's using, he's only got one problem, and that's where he finds his next hit. And when he's not using, he's, you know, his mother had mental health issues, he didn't have a job, he had a kid, he had, you know, and all this stuff. He had all these other problems when he wasn't using, you know? Yep. And it was just easier to use, and then he could. That was it. He had one problem, you know. And it's there's no when people don't have hope in their lives, that's when they're driven to use drugs, you know. And you can't separate it from wider society. So you can't separate drug use from you know the, the employment right, the, the people's access mm-hmm. to employment or education and, and all this kind of thing. You can't separate those things. And in Scotland, we do have a particular problem with drugs. Partly it's, I think, we have a culture of binging with alcohol and drugs in Scotland, and that tends to be particularly damaging to people's health. Uh, but also it's because we, we have long-standing issues of, of poverty. We have the cringe, which is a psychological effect on people. You know, It reduces people's self-confidence and self-esteem, and all these things feed into... A drug problem, and it's obvious that the traditional solutions that we are constrained to adopt because drug policy is reserved to UK aren't working. And it's like you know, it's like what we said, what we were saying earlier about the parameters within which Scotland is forced to operate are parameters that are set by a government which is not accountable to us. And drug policy is a perfect example of that. You know we in Scotland are forced to tackle drugs 
the Scottish Government gets the blame for it, but it is forced to, to operate within constraints that are imposed upon it by a government which isn't accountable to the people of Scotland. And that fundamentally is one of the reasons why Scotland needs to take control mm -hmm. of everything. Mm -hmm. And that means independence. I'm not saying independence would solve Scotland's drug problem, but it would give the Scottish Government the tools to start to adopt different and innovative strategies that could make a difference. Yeah, I mean, Scotland kind of made global headlines for when Glasgow, the Scottish Reduction Unit, Violence Reduction Unit in Glasgow took a kind of public health approach to knife crime. Yeah. And, and it dropped massively, it worked, it was fantastic success. You know, news outlets all over the world were saying, wow, look at look what Scotland's done, this is incredible. Right. And, uh, and, and in England are starting to copy that now as well, basically. Yeah. And it's just, you know, that was a case where they couldn't block it, it went fantastically. Exactly, because it was... In, in all these areas where they can block similar kind of progress, with, as you're saying, public health issue first. Well, it's because they're pandering to the Daily Mail and yeah. Daily Express. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. it is. Oh, soft on drugs are learning, oh, learning our children to have access to be all that. Mm -hmm. you know? And this outrage which would be generated in hysteria. Yeah, and I mean, this is, this is one of these issues as well. When it, This is my personal issue with when people talk about we need to get 60% in a yes vote for it to be you know, legitimate and stuff like that. Maybe that that resurfaces from time to time. That well, this is a matter of life and death in a lot of cases. You know, and, yeah. and this is a matter of rights for, for refugees and stuff. Let's let's not look say well, we need to get sixty percent or whatever. Let's get out and let's let's help people because it's yeah. literally a matter of life and death in cases. So that's all very depressing, isn't it? Really, but you know, I don't see the UK government budging. You know, the, the, there was the thing about. Uh, Medical cannabis, not even medical cannabis, but you know, it had you know THC had been removed from it, it was can uh, CBD oil, I think it was, you know, or uh, and there was all these problems about the a drug that was derived from cannabis, which was beneficial for people with severe epilepsy, and the struggles that the mother of that kid, I think it was mm -hmm. Northern Ireland, had to go through in order to get this medication for her child, which was the only thing that was controlling her child's epilepsy. And, that, you know, she had to go through all these hoops for a, something which wasn't even... It's, it's not like you're going to get stoned off it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's not like somebody's going to smoke it, you know? And it's just... it's They, they have this ludicrous attitude towards drugs, I think. It's based in hysteria, and it's not going to tackle the fundamental problems because fundamentally the only way to reduce drug use is to create an environment where people don't want to use it and that has been proven you know we can see it in the drug statistics in Scotland that criminalisation doesn't work so you have to have some other policy and you have to start off I believe from a policy of harm reduction you know, and you can't do that when you're criminalising the people that you're trying to reduce harm in, because then they're not going to come forward to seek help because you're saying to them that they're criminals and that they might get prosecuted. And that's essentially what Kit Mulhouse has done. He's now said that people who are assisting drug users to consume drugs in a safe way would be held responsible. You know, and that's just not helping at all, it's just making things worse mm. for the benefit of some headlines in the Daily Her the, the Daily the Daily Mail. Mm. So we've talked quite a bit about the ways we're being blocked and being hamstrung. Um, plan B. Oh, Plan B, yeah. 
Well, yeah, so this was um, Angus McNeil and Chris McElhenney, who's the councillor from Inverclyde, uh, and the MP Angus McNeil, both of whom tried last year to get a Plan B adopted at the SNP conference, only to find that, you know, the, the party leadership was quite successful in making sure that it wasn't discussed. What they've now suggested is that Boris Johnson needs to be given an ultimatum and uh, we should say to Boris Johnson that if you haven't agreed to a Section 30 order by April, uh, sorry, not by April, by Easter, uh, then the Scottish Government should press ahead with an alternative strategy. One of the things that they suggested was that the SNP should adopt a policy of standing for Holyrood in 2021 on an explicit mandate to have a referendum without a Section 30 order Mm. and go ahead that way. Now, we can quibble about the timing. Um, I think maybe I would give a, a slightly longer timetable myself, but that's by the by. But I do think fundamentally they're correct in their analysis that at some point, you know, we, we can do what Nicola Sturgeon wants and continue to build support for independence, and that is only going to help. Right? It's only going to make sure that when we do finally have a vote that we're going to win it. And that's a good thing. It builds a case for independence. It creates an atmosphere where people are starting to believe that independence is an inevitability. And the more that we do that, the more successful we're going to be. The more we do that, the more likely it's going to be that people will support an alternative strategy. Because that's also very important to make sure that when we do have an alternative strategy that we get public support for it. So that's all very worthwhile. I'm not knocking that at all. I think that's very sensible. But I think fundamentally, at the end of the day, and stop using cliches, Paul, (laughs) uh, Boris Johnson needs to be given an ultimatum. Because something... the, The more that support for independence rises, the more reluctant... Westminster's going to be to cooperate with an independence referendum. I mean, you were saying earlier about you know the ground game that the Yes movement's got, and that's only going to be strengthened and emboldened by mm. increasing support for Yes in the polls. And I, that is going to make Boris Johnson highly reluctant to cooperate with an independence referendum because he'll think he's going to lose it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think what we need to do is to create. An understanding, you know, that Boris Johnson needs to realise that the only hope in hell that he has of preventing independence is to agree to a referendum. Because if he doesn't, there will be a vote anyway, and he will lose it. And that's what he needs to understand. So some, at some point, he has to be tackled head on. Because at the moment, his refusal is consequence-free. He can say, no, I'm not allowing a Section 30 order, and there's no consequences for him. You know, the Scottish government say, oh, okay, fair enough, let's just keep on doing what we're doing. And Boris Johnson can continue to do that indefinitely until such point, you know, eventually there comes a point where you have to say, right, that's it, enough's enough, and this is what we're going to do now. You know, you don't get the initiative anymore, we're taking the initiative. And there's a number of ways that that can be done. You know, so the suggestion about standing on an explicit mandate for a referendum without a Section 30 order I think is quite an interesting one um, because then you can't quibble with that. You know, the, the, if the SNP or pro-independence parties win a majority in Holyrood in 2021, you cannot argue 
with that mandate. You know, they would, of course, anyway. <laughs> but, you know, it means that the Scottish government isn't waiting for someone's permission. Mm-hmm. You know, they go ahead with it. And they use that to leverage, you know, uh, an agreed referendum from Westminster. They need something to leverage it. That's the problem that we don't have at the moment. Yeah, as you say, it is just a consequence for you. And, it, and it, I wonder, you know, it, it almost it makes people feel a little disillusioned, I think. There's a lot of that, and it really that's what concerns me because I see that a lot from people, you know, that there, there is... There's only so often that you can keep saying, yeah, let's just do this, let's just do that, let's just do this a bit more, let's just do this a bit more without having a kind of final target and end date in sight. People get fed up, people get tired, people get worn out, you know, and you can't... There are already suspicions amongst many in the, the broader grassroots movement that too many SNP politicians are getting too comfortable and we're not doing this in order to have you know, no matter how good the SNP is as the as the government and a devolved administration, that's not what we want. You know, we don't vote SNP because we want them to be in charge of a devolved administration. We vote SNP because we want independence. And that's what the party needs to focus on. I think that's a nice place to round up. Yep. So here's hoping that we will. I'm sure they will. Actually, I don't doubt that they will because I know that they are all committed to independence. Mm. You know, it's just that there is definitely a, a struggle within the party, I think, between gradualists and people who are a bit less patient <laughs> with Westminster. So I do think it's sensible, you know, to make sure that we have a solid base to start from. I would like to go into the next independence referendum with a majority in support of independence, you know, and but, but practically there at the moment, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we are really there now. I would like to make sure that that is solid, that that support, um, because I think support for the UK isn't as solid. I think it's very weak, and I think that we could make significant inroads into that. But these are reasons precisely why the anti-independence parties don't want to give a referendum because they know they'll lose it. So Mm. we have to make sure that they have a reason for it. And, of course, to the next referendum, there will be one paper on the newsstands with blasting an independence message daily. There will. Which can only help, I'm sure. Yep. Well, it'll make a difference because we never had that the last time. Mm. We had it once a a week on a Sunday. (laughs) That was it. Mm. So, but yeah, but no, and, and... I'm actually quite confident. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm far more confident. I've said this before, but I'm far more confident about the prospects for independence now than I was in 2014. Yeah. You know, I really do think it is going to happen now. It's just, it's just, we're, we're quibbling about the timing, but I think, I think we're only going in the one direction in Scotland, and that is towards, you know increasing disengagement from the British state, (laughs) shall we say. So, but yeah, it'd be nice to have a full-time Prime Minister and not a part-time. Wouldn't mind it at all. We could have a full-time First Minister of an independent Scotland. So, yeah. We'll be welcome. Yeah. So, that's us. Thank you very much uh, for listening, everyone. Yep. And we'll be back next week, no doubt. We'll be back next week. Uh, See you then. See you then, everyone. Bye.